Hello and welcome. This is a podcast explaining Ukraine by ukraineworld.org, a website in English about Ukraine. Ukraine World is brought to you by Internews Ukraine, one of the biggest and oldest Ukrainian media NGOs. My name is Vladimir Yermolenko. I'm chief editor of ukraineworld.org. Today we will talk about geopolitics. There is so much talk about these geopolitical reasons of the current Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine. At Explaining Ukraine, we talk a lot, of, a lot about the human aspect of it. But let's also talk about geopolitics. I'm very happy to have our guest, who is Danilo Lubkivsky, famous Ukrainian diplomat and director of Kyiv Security Forum. Good morning, Danilo. Good morning, Volodya. Thank you very much for having me today with you. Thank you very much for talking to me uh, at this moment because it's very important this you know geopolitical framework that we often see. Um, it is often also played by Russian uh, propaganda, right? So Russians are always saying that this is all about the great power struggle and that Ukrainians have no agency in this war and they have been dragged into this war because they, they, they fight NATO, they fight Americans, etc. So we, my first question will be the following. We often hear this ge geopolitical explanation of this war that uh, this is a great power struggle, which produced big wars. Do you think that such approach can really explain Russia's war against Ukraine? Thank you, dear Volodya, for this opportunity to address your great audience. And I'm really grateful for your important questions. I believe they're important for the Ukrainian audience, but also for the international one as well. Um, but before we start, uh, I wish to make, in my opinion, an important remark. Uh, we are going to discuss the geopolitics. We are going to discuss um, some co complex matters. Um, however, our explanations, particularly my explanations, uh, apparently uh, will be simple. Um, for that, I wish to apologize before our audience uh, and uh, to ask not to, not to judge uh, my conclusions severely. Uh, but to accept this exercise uh, as an attempt to find some general guidelines. So, if we speak about the narrative that uh, Russia tries to impose on, on, on the global uh, community, saying that uh, everything what we see is this, is this is the fight between big powers. Uh, last November, if I'm not mistaken, I had a chance to meet a few Russian liberals in Riga at the Riga Security Conference. Among, among them, I listened to a scholar from Moscow who um, said two important notions. First one, there might be differences, he said, between us, I mean, between the Russians, the, the Russian politicians uh, within the Russian political or cultural elite, in the ways how do we see the domestic development of Russia. But there is certainly an overwhelming consensus on how do we see the foreign policy and the international role of Russia. This is an important, extremely important point. So they are united how they see the international role of Russia. So even Russian liberals, they, they may subscribe to Putin's narrative, for example. Those persons that I saw uh, claim to be Russian liberals. Among them, definitely, uh, I was um, uh, happy to meet those who uh, clearly who are clearly committed to the democratic ideals. But nevertheless, the persons I talk about, I believe, um, uh, pretends to be a liberal. And his second point was, if Russia's neighbor, for instance, Ukraine, 
were loyal to Russia, Russia would never try to invade. That's the second important point. Um, later, I saw that person on the Russian TV absolutely bluntly saying that everything what we face today in Ukraine, this genocidal war, this is, as he said, as he put it, this is what big powers do. Uh, in my opinion, these two points, points about the consensus, the Russian consensus uh, on the international role of the country and uh, uh, f about the, the loyalty to, to the interests of the great or big power, uh, these two points vividly show how dangerous is the idea of a legitimate right of, the, of, of great powerness, if I may say so and how profoundly this concept has poisoned the minds um, even of those in Russia who claim to be liberal. So they are saying that, okay, you Russians are great powers, and a great power, Ukraine is not a great power, so they can do anything about uh, with Ukrainians. If Ukrainians try to choose another great power, then they, they don't have a right to exist, and they can be exterminated, uh, like Joseph Conrad once said, uh, exterminate all the brutes. Is that their saying? Even more, uh, they suggest a concept which is uh, interesting just to uh, reflect on. Uh, what they say, literally, if you were loyal, I would not attack. That's um, presumably what Russia suggests to, to its neighbors, as they, as they say. But the point is, and the truth of this point is, that it means that this is up to me to judge if you are loyal. It would be my assessment of your loyalty and of my rightful interests. Um, I remember my encounter with the famous Russian journalist Venediktov, uh, if I'm not mistaken, the former chief, uh, editor-in-chief of uh, the Echo of Moscow. Echo uh, Moskvy, the, the so-called liberal media, which was part of the Gazprom media, right? So liberal but controlled, and uh, and, and yes, who was pretending to be a, kind of a liberal Russian voice, but now it's closed. Uh, we had a meeting in 2014, uh, just a chat, a, an informal one, um, and I was uh, not even surprised, but frankly shocked when he said that Ukraine was to accept the Crimea occupation. When asked why, he actually repeated the same point. This is what the big power can do. So humble yourself. This is the natural way of doing things. I'm not telling that, that this is a literal uh, uh, quote of what he said, but the idea behind his words was, was like that. And here, let me uh, dwell on the elements of the international theory, which may help us understand whether this approach is uh, um, uh, right or not, and if uh, there is something essential within it, and how to, uh, and what what kind of attitude should we, uh, with what kind of attitude should we respond to that? Um, 
Klaus Dots in his geopolitics, very popular brochure about the, the, the theory of the geopolitics, uh, dwelt upon the, the, the substance of the uh, realist theory in the international politics. Definitely the realist theory, theorists say that states inhabit a world which is anarchical because of an absence of a world government capable of restrict, restricting their actions. Meaning, let, let us come back to, uh, to this concept, realism, right? To explain to our audience, which are not probably ge geopoliticians, it was born in, in the United States during the Cold War. I think one of the creators was Hans Morgenthau, who was a, a German Jew, who emigrated to the United States, and he kind of looked at the international order as a as a kind of this Hobbesian war of all against all. There is no world government, so basically, therefore, it's anarchic and just, you know, this permanent war between states. Right. And Klaus Dot says that in the most basic, basic forms of realism, self-interest and power projection are assumed as a consequence to be axiomatic. So we talk about self-interest and power projection, in the world without any kind of form of central government. Doesn't sound true. Obviously, yes, because we live in the world where different players and actors have different interests and they compete and struggle. Though there are important nuances. For instance, let's talk about what is a concept of great power. What is a great power? Different uh, international references give different examples of how should we uh, understand the, this, this, uh, this term, this concept. And uh, the concept in general says that a great power is a state seen as playing a major role in the international politics. A great power is a sovereign state that is recognized as having the ability and expertise to exert its influence on a global scale. But great powers characteristically uh, possess military and economic strength, as well as diplomatic and soft power influence, which may cause middle or small powers to consider the great powers' opinions before taking actions of their own. And here, let me also mention another feature. Uh, sometimes the status of great power of great powers is formally recognized in the international bodies, like the United Nations Security Council. But if we talk about the 21st century, let's be frank. Be, being a permanent member of the United Nations Security Council does not necessarily mean that you are a great power. On the margins, there are, there are legitimate questions whether Russia has a legal right to be a P5 member, not being a formal United Nations member. So this is yet another discussion that we may yes, also... Yes, because it was a hair of the Soviet Union, etc. And, and Ukraine was among the founders of the United Nations, not Ukraine and Belarus, not Russian Federation. Right, that's true. And, and it gives us grounds to question whether Russia has a right to be the permanent member of uh, the United Nations Security Council with its veto right. As we all remember, the United Nations Security Council is the only body in the national politics that uh, keeps, uh, that has a responsibility to maintain international peace and security. Being a great power 
in many senses, what we know from our history, what we know from the current, for the, from the modern international politics, is not only about military abilities. This is about economic economic capacity. This is about the overall international engagement and so on. And here is one very important point that I would like to um, uh, focus on. Again, Klaus Dotz, what he says, that the realists tend to overemphasize em- over conflict and competition as at the expense of cooperation in the international politics. The interstate system, he says, has demonstrated a capacity, perhaps surprising to some observers, to collaborate and develop joint institutions like the European Union. What it means, to sum this up, I do not consider Russia's war against Ukraine as a war between the so-called great powers. This is the war that Russia unleashed because of a false understanding of the international politics and modern meaning of the great power concept. They tried to impose on us the perception of a war of the worlds, but it is not so. Look how Russia's fighting. They fight according to the methods of the World War II. This is an outdated approach that what we saw in Ukraine. An enormous tragedy what we experience today, what we feel, what our nation feels. Similarly, they are they, Russians, they are obsessed with the outdated views not only about the military methods to gain their goals, but how to conduct the international politics. It's a deep disease, deep disease not only of their political leadership or military one, the the leadership of war criminals, but that's a deep disease deeply rooted in the political and uh, um, social cultural of the Russian society. Putin lost this war in Ukraine before he even started, because Putin right now does not know what to do. This war This is not the war between great powers. This is the war of Russia, which tries to remain a great power. And maybe even more. uh, This is the war of Russia, which probably was a great power during the Soviet times. No longer longer is a great power. It tries to jump, jump back. And it uses the enormous resources, its last resources, probably to, to come back to the status. And the only one instrument they have. That instrument is military. Yes, because they they had a lot of a lot of, you know, uh, capacity to influence Ukraine through soft power, through the information channels. Come on, that all the information channel in uh, channels in Ukraine, all the information space, cultural space was occupied by Russians in after the even after the collapse of the Soviet Union. Even more, they suggested an idea, which they tried to impose not only Ukraine but other neighbors, the Russian idea, the idea of the so-called Russian world. And it failed. Uh, For for that reason, uh, Putin lost in Ukraine, lost Ukraine, lost uh, in every sense, politically, strategically, culturally, since he tried to tell us that you are not Ukrainians, you are Russians, and we denied. And it's interesting, let, let me come back maybe to the second question, because in this framework of these great power struggles, what, what strikes me is that uh, basically Ukrainians are now going not only against the will of the Russians, they're also g- coming against the will of the West. Because uh, the European was, Union was saying in mid 
2000, I think that was the message that, okay, we have enlarged. 2007 was the, um, uh, the, the year when the European Union accepted Romania and Bulgaria, then there was Croatia, and it was like a message, okay, uh, we, are, we are done, we are full. We will probably integrate Western Balkans, we're not sure about that, but for Ukraine, Moldova, Belarus, we keep Eastern Partnership with no membership perspective. So it was like, like this. It was a fatigue of an enlargement fatigue, right, uh, from the European Union. From, uh, I would point it as this way, uh, Europe and maybe the West, including NATO, uh, was tired to enlarge, Russia was tired not to enlarge. And the key years were 2007-2008. 2007, the Putin's address at Munich conference, 2008, Russia's invasion of Georgia, etc. So in, in, a, in a sense, Ukraine's history after this year was... Uh, a statement, a big political statement through our revolutions, etc., that we don't agree, we, we have, don't agree either with Russia or with Europe. So we are going against these two wills. Would you, would you agree with that? That's a tricky one. Nice try. Uh, but um, I'm sorry to contradict. And I don't think that that's, that's a right concept to explain what's going on on the West. However, uh, it doesn't mean that there is no f some kind of uh, interesting arguments that we, we have to discuss. Uh, this concept that you are telling, uh, which, belongs, which belongs to many analysts, uh, this concept excludes a sovereign right and ability of Ukraine to influence the international relations. Simply excludes. Um, but, but that's what I'm saying, that Ukrainians were strong enough to contradict fully the wills of great powers. Fully agree with this point. The agency of Ukraine, in my opinion, has made a tremendous difference. And this is what the international politics is about, about the agency. Not only the self-interest, not only the power, but the agency, the ability to act and to, to uh, promote uh, your, your interests and your goals that correspond to the, in my opinion, and in the opinion of the Ukrainian foreign policy doctrine, uh, for that uh, for, uh, for correspond to the civilized principles of the international relations and cooperation. Can we say that there are political, some political forces or some political, some political even environment in Europe that were, was, or remain reluctant in their attitude toward Ukraine's accession to the European Union and NATO? Definitely yes. But what we see today is that uh, almost 70% of uh, the citizens of the countries that, that belong, of those nations that belong to the European Union, stand for and stand with Ukraine. But why is that? Because, because of the actions of Ukrainians. Absolutely because ima right. imagine we didn't have Orange Revolution, we didn't have Revolution of Dignity, we didn't have Russia's invasion, and Ukraine, Ukraine was perceived for many decades after the collapse of the Soviet Union as a kind of a misunderstanding, as a kind of a Russia's colony. Of course, we now see this change, dramatic change in so much support, but it's not because the Western society has been changing. For example, it was saying, okay, the enlargement fatigue was bad. 
we should enlarge further because, as Ukrainians have been saying, European values are enlarging. They are going farther and farther. They are going to the Europe, uh, Eastern Europe. They are going to the Middle East. This idea, ideas of individual freedoms, human rights, they are keep on enlarging despite the, uh, the stalemate in institutions. Right. This is because of the uh, of the position of of the Ukrainians and uh, our clear manifestations manifestation of what we want. So definitely, this is about the agency and the ability to manifest and to promote your goals. Uh, but we started from the point where this is the part of that great power concept when some great powers decide whether this or another nation can belong to the club. And uh, the Ukrainian example, why it is so dangerous for Russia, proves that uh, this is not about those, a few of them, who decide whether that or another country may, may become a member of the club, but this is about the uh, readiness and desire of the nation to belong to the values and principles that uh, are the basement for those who are united in that, in that aim. Exactly. And I, I think that uh, it's very important to see how Ukrainian case just undermines this idea of great powers, because it is not in Brussels and Washington that people decided that Ukraine will be European. It's, it's uh, on, on Ukrainian Maidans, on Ukrainian squares, on Ukrainian uh, streets, because there is a global and very profound change in the way how Ukrainians see the reality, how they see the society, how they see the, um, the changes. And another paradox is that when Russians are saying, and some people in the West as well, that this is a great power, this is NATO against Russia, this is fight for resources, I'm asking what resources do they want in Ukraine? What resource, for example, if we, if we talk about the First World War, obviously Ukraine was a breadbasket. The Germans came here in 1918, uh, imposed a, a kind of a dependent government of Hetman Skoropatsky, and uh, yes, they were uh, seeking the Ukrainian uh, agricultural resources. The same for Hitler, for example. He was considering Ukraine as a Lebensraum, etc. And there was also the fight between Stalinist idea to take all the Ukrainian food and Nazi idea to take all the Ukraine. These, uh, these elements were there. Now, I mean, okay, Ukraine plays a very important role in the global agricultural exports, etc. But neither Europe nor, nor NATO are dependent on that, right? Ukraine doesn't have oil resources, doesn't have gas resources, etc. So it's not a resource struggle, it's something different. The second thing is that uh, every time we talk to a high-level Western politicians uh, and saying Ukraine should be become a EU member, etc., well, they were they were very reluctant, you know, to react on that. Let's let's be let's be honest. So they are dragged by the events. They are uh, Ukrainian events change history, not not their geopolitical thinking. Do you agree? Um, I agree that there is a, a huge improvement uh, on, on, on the side of the Western powers of, uh, in, their political in, in their political approaches, including Ukraine, uh, when they, uh, and, and not only Ukraine, but, the Eastern, but Eastern Europe as well, and the, and the nations of Eastern Europe, when they discovered this part of, uh, of Europe and they opened the doors for these nations that wanted to be a part of the United of the United Europe, uh, that's true, and this is an important shift 
in the geopolitical, if I may say so, mentality of the 21st century, and not only at the end of the, of the end of the 20th century, this is the uh, human shift. This is the the shift which um, uh, uh, presumably says that, uh, if, uh, in my opinion, presumably that if, if there is no such kind of thing that the the the, the borders of this type of unions are determined but they are open for those who can and wish belong to to the community and can and wish implement the values and principles declared to be the basic and the fundamental one uh, ones for 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 the for the commonwealth so but here let me also say that uh, there are another of, of uh, important uh, of, uh, elements that we should also keep in mind when we speak about the concept of great power uh, powerness and uh, how it influences the international politics and including the, uh, the including the the role of ukraine and here we've got a few other important elements that we should keep in mind when we talk that um, uh, our Western neighbors were reluctant in, in the, for some time in their attitude toward Ukraine, I wouldn't agree since the uh, real facts they contradict and they uh, uh, simply do not give us a possibility to say so. Since Ukraine had a productive, distinctive partnership with European Union and NATO since the very beginning. So Ukraine was on the track of the European and Euro-Atlantic integrations, uh, has been on this track for years. Uh, then there is another important point, uh, which is um, uh, regularly is being used in different discussions, when uh, including such important voices as the voice of uh, uh, the, the Pope of Rome or other international figures of uh, huge value when saying, uh, while saying that uh, uh, Russia was provoked by the West, that this is mea culpa thing, that this is something which provoked Russia and uh, um, uh, meaning that NATO barking at Russia's doors, or uh, meaning that uh, Ukraine should remain a gray zone between the West and Russia, and so on. So let us not cross the line of the so-called Russian interest or interest of its sphere of influence. I mean, all these ideas, all these points are irrelevant, since this is, this is not Ukraine who provoked Russia. And this is not the West who provoked Russia. Russia had... Who wanted to be provoked. Ru Russia. Uh, actually, even uh, Russia even uh, uh, didn't need to have any kind of provocation, but they tried to um, accommodate necessary military resources and financial capabilities to ensure that they can restore the sphere of influence. So this is, was not, it was not a momentum when um, uh, uh, someone provoked Russia. That was a momentum of their ability to attack. Because Russia usually attack, attacks when the victim or the target is weak. They thought that Ukraine was weak. And this is a huge miscalculation which happened in the leadership, uh, by, uh, which, which was done by the leadership of Russia. And Hamo here, was saying that Russia is a victim of its own disinformation. 
maybe so. Uh, and uh, uh, I would add yet another important word, Russian ignorance. Since they are so much preoccupied with their greatness and their uh, uh, false superiority over other nations, they simply do not understand what's going on around them. So they simply couldn't understand and couldn't accept what makes it even more difficult, couldn't accept the independence of the Ukrainian nation. They really believe there are no Ukrainians. They really believe that everything is orchestrated by Biden or someone else or the Austro-Hungarian general staff. So they still, still, still years alive after, after still. collapse of the Habsburg right. Empire. And here uh, I wish to quote Timothy Snyder and his famous speech he uh, made at the invitation of the KU Security Forum. We ask him to say why the Ukrainian victory is so important for the world. And, and Dr. Snyder said very important, he made a brilliant speech and he made many important points, but I wish to uh, focus uh, for the attention of our listeners to one of one of most important uh, for thesis. A victory by Ukraine is also a victory by a state which has traditionally been seen as colonial against a power which was like to see itself as central and as imperial, he says. Every European power and plenty of other powers reach a point where they realize that they will be exhausted by the imperial war, and this is, frankly, a very good thing, a good thing for everyone concerned. So, because this is an imperial war, Timothy Snyder says, a war which Russian leadership claims that there is no Ukrainian people, there is no uh, Ukrainian state, a victory by Ukraine is important to defend the basic principle that nations are equal and states deserve respect. End of quote. Means, it means that this is the uh, final imperial war which Russia waged against Ukraine. What difference may the Ukrainian victory make in the international politics? In my opinion, uh, there may be some five uh, conclusions that, or some five uh, predictions, assumptions that we can make today. Definitely, and for that I apologize before our audience, since uh, if, uh, I don't pretend, I don't, I don't pretend that these conclusions may be uh, very precise. But nevertheless, uh, for, uh, by saying so, I would like to uh, share my understanding of what may happen. Uh, when Ukraine inevitably wins the war, Russia's war against us. First of all, I, th I believe that Russia's role in the international politics will be severely diminished. There is a clear uncertainty, uncertainty whether Russia would be able even to stand that blow. Point number two, we may expect a return of the United West, that will make a huge difference in the, inter in the current international politics. Point number three, we may expect more profound role of China. We may expect, point number four, we may expect new attempts to reshape the international architecture, meaning the international bodies, including the United Nations, and hopefully uh, the composition of the United Nations Security Council. Uh, which is a very difficult question and uh, for, doesn't look 
um, optimistic in terms of real reshape, real change, including the uh, veto right and the, uh, uh, the, the quantity of members who belong to this body. And we may, may expect, that's point, point number five, we may expect a new role of Ukraine. A new role of Ukraine um, uh, in Europe and globally. Uh, definitely, a lot would depend on many factors. We have no idea how, how many losses we have already uh, uh, felt and uh, uh, already experienced and, and, and how, how, how many people and uh, other losses we, we had during this war. We don't know how strongly is uh, our economic potential is undermined and so on. So there, there would be a lot of issues that could later help us uh, figure out what would be the, uh, the way of Ukraine's economic, political, strategic recovery. But nevertheless, Ukraine's victory will prove the agency of Ukraine, will prove the ability of Ukraine to protect its interests in the international on the international arena and definitely here we would see, we will see the most important strategic conclusion conclusion that Ukraine will discover itself before the world as the antithesis of imperialism in the region in Europe and globally that's i think very important and very very clear uh, it's also, when, when we talk about imperialism, it's, it's also very important that the West should stop uh, perceiving itself as the only imperialism in the world, right? Because uh, anti-imperialist theories in the West uh, sometimes are also West-centered upside down because uh, they are considering that the West is the, the most horrible em uh, empire. But what we are seeing now <coughs> in, in Ukraine is that <laughs> there are good competitors, you know to the West in this respect. So uh, let us reflect a little bit upon the te uh, theoretical framework. How can we understand what's going on? Because, of course, we are full of emotions, but we also need to think and need to analyze what's going on. There are, se there are various theoretical... I will, I will try to make a kind of a brief introduction to various theoretical frameworks and maybe uh, give my estimation very brief. And I'm very interested of what, what you think. For example, uh, there is a lot of talk, and Russia uses very much, this is framework of clash of civilizations, of Mr. Huntington, etc., who was claiming uh, up to the end of the Cold War that uh, uh, Eastern Slavic or East Slavic Orthodox world, meaning the Russian world, is a separate civilization. And there can be no war, for example, between Ukraine and Russia on this term. And uh, our events show that he was wrong. So this approach doesn't work. There is approach of famous approach of uh, Fukuyama, which are, you know, very, uh, uh, very fashionable to criticize right now. Right, the the idea of an end of history because we see the popularity of the authoritarianism, etc. But I would doubt this uh, criticism of Fukuyama. Of course, uh, there are limits to this theory. But what's now go is going on is is a uh, it also confirms that these liberal democratic values, despite all the problems, they are, they are enlarging, they are going further. There is a crisis inside the democratic world. But when we talk about, let's say, other countries, 
the borderlands of the democratic world. These values are still very important. So probably we have to rethink it. Uh, there is also classical geopolitical framework of Mackinder, of Haushofer, you know, early 20th century. It seems to be very outdated, but when we look at Russia, uh, they are really revitalizing these theories. And they are constructing their idea of themselves as if there is a greedy West trying to conquer the Eurasian space. Uh, interesting what you think about it. Uh, there is uh, also, I think, when we talked uh, at the beginning, uh, I just understand that there is this concept of black swan, for example, of Taleb, you know, very, very interesting concept that changes uh, the perception uh, of what's going on. Because Ukraine has been a black swan. Nobody really was expecting this, this turns, this Ukrainian agency, etc. So probably we can think about this way. Uh, what, what are the frameworks, theoretical frameworks, that you think can explain what is happening? It would be too easy to respond like that, that none of these concepts and all of them together. But nevertheless, uh, f uh, if we would like to make some general conclusion, uh, f uh, I would dare saying that uh, uh, obviously we witness and face an enormous global conflict which influences the lives of millions of uh, people all over the globe. Um, but trying to explain what's going on, I find myself in the position that uh, I believe that the most, uh, I would say, um, uh, uh, important concept was recently uh, 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 delivered and recently uh, suggested by our American and European colleagues, saying that this is a conflict be between democracy and autocracy. Maybe it is too simple to explain this way. But nevertheless, there is something, I believe, that there is a reason, reasonable arguments behind this, this idea. And here, let me tell you an important and interesting uh, uh, quotation uh, for, from yet another for, for important figure. Once he said, at the present moment in the history, in, in world history, nearly every nation must choose between alternative ways of life. One way of life is based upon the will of the majority and is distinguished by free institutions, representative government, free elections, and guarantees of individual liberty, freedom of speech and religion, and freedom from political oppression. The second way of life is based upon the will of minority, forcibly imposed upon the majority. It relies upon terror and oppression, a controlled press and radio, fixed elections, and the suppression of personal freedoms. Imagine who said this. That was President Truman saying these words in his address to the Congress in 1947. So similarly, this is the same concept which is now being uh, promoted and uh, f uh, f uh, uh, guidelined by President Biden. But this can be said also by Aristotle. <laughs> of course, definitely. As far as, far as this. Since the human nature uh, is unchangeable in many ways. But he also added, President Truman said, that the world is not static and the status quo is not sacred. Uh, these words uh, resonate with what Anne Applebaum uh, recently wrote in Atlantic. 
There is no natural liberal world order, and there are no rules without someone to enforce them. Unless democracies defend themselves together, the forces of autocracy will destroy them. In my opinion, we definitely see the fight, the struggle, the conflict between democracy or concept of democracy and concept of autocracy. Uh, trying to convince the humanity what way of doing things is better and more effective. Nevertheless, uh, if we get back to the uh, Ukrainian situation, if we get back to, to what we witness today in this part of, of the world, I would see that right now we are witnessing the long death of the Russian Empire. Someone said that World War I did not finish in 1918. Its major result was the end of then existing empires except Russia. Now we approach the end of this story. And maybe it may help us explain what's going on around us. I fully agree. I think uh, also globally people underestimate this imperial nature of Russia. Russia is has been perceived as a nation state. Uh, not as a, as a as an empire which combines very different uh, very different ethnicities, not only Ukrainians and Belarusians at that time during Soviet Union, but also lots of other much much more remote from this idea of you know Slavic unity, etc. So I think that uh, really the um, the First World War was the end of. Uh, basically, initially it was the end of all empires, literally Russian Empire, uh, the Second German Empire, Habsburg Empire, Ottoman Empire. In the end, some of them have rebuilt themselves, meaning the German Empire in the, in the Third Reich, uh, in the 30s, and Russian Empire already during the 20th Soviet Union. But then I think the key thing was the, 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 the coming of Stalin in 29 and basically it, it coincided more or less with the coming of Hitler so the uh, the Soviet Union in the Leninist form it was horrible but it was still a playing of with the idea of kind of a, this uh, community of different nation states the republic so-called republics etc Stalinist version of it was much more uh, centered imperialist and uh, etc Right, uh, the Second World War put an end to this German Empire, German imperialism, and then we just have left with the Russian imperialism on the European continent. Would you agree with this idea, which is often expressed, that Cold War was, and the, the, the loss of the Cold War was for Russia as the loss, German loss in the First World War, and therefore this kind of a defeat, which produced a short period of democracy in Russia, we can compare the Yeltsin period with the Weimar Republic in Germany. And then, you know, this revanchism with Putin uh, and, and therefore he seeks for another war. So we can really think in these terms. Would you agree with that? Uh, I would agree with the point that what to do with Russia is the most important question of the 21st century. Uh, for our part of the world and globally as well. But definitely, I cannot accept the idea that uh, Russia should be compared to Germany after the First World, First World War and uh, that Russia was somehow abandoned and uh, neglected uh, for, since Russia, for, from the very beginning, from the very beginning of the collapse of the Soviet Union, was not only invited but uh, deeply incorporated in the international structures. Russia, despite not being a formal member of the United Nations, became the 
the here of the Soviet Union in the United Nations Security Council. Russia actually was invited to become, being an, uh, an economic middle power, to become uh, the member of the G7, then G8 club, uh, f that includes uh, the most uh, um, important and efficient uh, democratic economies of the world. So Russia was, was invited and, to tell the truth, warmly invited at the expense of other neighbors to uh, the world of democracy. Russia, unfortunately, uh, did not and never accepted that invitation. Russia thought that it should play its own uh, great powerness role in the world and always had this desire to rebuild this role in the international politics. So this is not about that mea culpa thing that we talked uh, a few minutes ago. This is, I mean, mea culpa thing uh, on behalf of the Western powers. This is not about any kind of provocation or any kind of an attempt to somehow to limit the interest of Russia. But this is the clear-cut desire of Russia to influence the international politics in the way which may help them protect their false understanding of superiority. Uh, and this way of attitude is clearly uh, proven not only by their behavior on the international arena, but in their domestic polit politics. Look at Russia. Russia had every chance to build a, a strong economy, uh, a system which may help their citizens to uh, get uh, a better life, but also to get rid of the imperial diseases. The diseases of xenophobia, chauvinism, diseases of this nostalgia for the, for, for the former Soviet Union. Contrary to that, they did everything to simply to, not to cure the Russian society, but to strengthen these diseases, I mean to, to, uh, to, uh, to deepen these diseases. Uh, for, uh, recently, I saw the results of, of one of the polls saying what kind of moods are within the Russian society. I mean, I, I, don't, I don't wish even to talk about the terrible fact that overall majority of the Russians stand for the military uh, offensive against Ukraine. They, they simply support the war against us. And it means that there is a strong collective responsibility of Putin, not only of Putin, but of the political and cultural elite for what the Kremlin is doing right now. But there was another important notion that uh, almost 40 million millions of, of Russians, they support the idea of the uh, uh, restoration of the Soviet Union. So, so to put it simply, they, they order the music. They, they are the collective Putin. Yeah, and the, the problem is, <clears throat> the huge problem of Russia is that uh, Russian uh, tradition, intellectual tradition, doesn't really have an alternative. It doesn't really have big thinking about how to organize uh, Russia democratically, how to organize it as a nation state, not as an empire which always enlarges, which always seeks, seeks extension, which always seeks, you know, the occupation of other lands. And that's the problem. Uh, that's a problem to some extent, but this is not an excuse. Of course, of course. And the international politics say 
that every your terrible mistake will lead you to the collapse. At some point, Ukrainians made a mistake when um, they have chosen the road not of their own independence, but of belonging belonging to uh, some other uh, state uh, formations that looked like helping us to protect our uh, independence. That was a wrong choice, meaning the choice during the Cossack times and, and so on. I mean, definitely. I've, that's I've, another topic. That's, that's another, another topic. topic. But we'll talk ne nevertheless, this is important to say. So every nation makes its own mistakes. But right now what we see that Russia is guilty not only of some mistake, but of a great crime against Ukraine, against the world, against the ideas of humanity. Thank you, Danilo. Thank you for this uh, this conversation and this ending, which I, which I, of course, share wholeheartedly. So we had Danilo Lubkivsky, who is the director of Kyiv Security Forum, uh, one of the biggest uh, platforms for talking about the European security. And uh, I hope also these events will increase the the intellectual intellectual capacity of Ukraine to, you know, to talk about the global security and to, to give also the solutions. Dan Danilo Lubkiewski, director of Kyiv Security Forum. This was a podcast explaining Ukraine by ukraineworld.org, a website in English about Ukraine. My name is Volodymyr Yermolenko. I'm chief editor of ukraineworld.org. Uh, you can support us on Patreon, patreon.com slash ukraineworld. Follow us on uh, social networks, Facebook, Twitter, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, YouTube, SoundCloud. Stay with us and stand with Ukraine.